0: A lot of people have this background hum of anxiety that they've just become used to. This sort of screen-focused life we have, in addition to taking us away from things that we know are better for us to do and more meaningful and more fulfilling, is also screwing around with our brain chemistry.
1: Today, I'm very happy to have back on the show one of my favorite thinkers and writers about the contemporary digital age, Cal Newport. So Cal is well known as a computer science professor who also writes about the intersection of technology and culture. One of my favorite all-time bloggers as well. His new book, Digital Minimalism, is about the dangers of the distractions of social media. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. But first, I just had to get his take on something that's been on my mind, which is the drastic freefall in the last few years of the quality of blogs, which long-time listeners will know I'm a huge fan of. So I had to ask him, what does he think is happening in the blogosphere? (laughs)
0: When you think about blogs, I call it a capitalist attention market, because what's happening is you're in competition with lots of other interesting sources of information, and you really are only going to earn attention if you win that competition. So if you produce something that is interesting, there's an audience that likes it, you're the right person to say it, it's useful, it's well-constructed, you can earn attention in that market, and if you don't, you won't. No one will come. I think anyone who's experimented with blogs knows what that's like. No comments, no visits. You stare at the Google Analytics chart and it's a flat line. (laughs) We're losing the patient. Social media did something interesting with this attention market. It upended it and added what's more of a collectivist market. So if you think about the normal person's experience with something like Facebook or Instagram, there's this unspoken agreement you have with people you know which is, you know, I'll put up something probably pretty banal, but you'll give it some attention. Maybe you'll like it or leave a comment because I'll do the same for you. And we'll all sort of spread the attention around. So we no longer have to, we're no longer in a competition where only the interesting things get attention. Everyone gives a little bit of attention to everyone else. And then everyone can share in that experience of feeling like someone is paying attention to what I'm saying. So what what I like to emphasize is if you took the content of a normal, let's say Facebook wall and put it on a, a private domain blog, you would have no visitors. If you took the the standard Instagram account and, and put it on a private domain blog, no one's going to come see. You know, who cares? But you put it within these social media ecosystems and it looks like you're part of this vibrant conversation where people are commenting and liking and hitting hearts. And the social media companies know this. They know attention is a very valuable experience or sensation for people. And so by spreading it around, they're making their services a lot more attractive to their users.
1: One of the laments I've had is that social media has not only taken over low-quality conversations, but it's actually dissuaded a lot of people from creating higher-quality ones. I've noticed, for example, that a lot of people who used to blog a lot, instead, for the sake of getting more attention for their work, at least in their mind, they'll put those posts on Facebook instead in less thought-out form.
0: I think that's definitely happening. I mean, you probably remember from the Early days of Tropical MBA, I remember this certainly from the early days of Calnewport.com, that struggle in the first couple of years to really find a voice and find an audience, and it's hard work. You really write a lot, you think about what you're writing, you're getting feedback, you're trying to understand what people need to hear. And this creates really good content. If you get rid of those forces, then it's just uh eh, I'm kind of sharing things with people I know and they're looking at it and they're sharing things with me, and it's really quick clicks. And I think what you're probably getting, I think you're right is an overall net decrease in the amount of quality being published online.
1: Oftentimes, if you say things really well thought out and authoritative in a long form, it will get less superficial interaction because people don't have things to offer to a well-researched, thought out piece, say, about tax reform, which is a really important issue that affects people deeply. It might change many people's lives, but have zero comments and no Facebook likes. This is the sort of thing that I see that kills me, because people that these things matter to that doesn't translate into them clicking a social approval tool. It translates into them to them talking to their partner about it. It translates into them changing their life. You know what I mean? Like they're different things, and I think by showing us these superficial impact metrics confuses people as to what impact really can be.
0: I think that's 100% true. I think the social approval indicators do a very poor job of measuring impact in the way that you probably want to measure it, which is actual change in the way someone understands the world or acts. You can have something that's shared 100,000 times. That probably means what you're doing is it's funny or you're reinforcing some idea that people already had. Whereas you can have, on the other hand, a, a blog where the content's very careful And maybe there's only 30 comments on this post, but it's one of a series of long posts. And over time, what you're doing is changing the minds of an influential group of people who are now going to understand the way they see the world, the way they run their businesses, the way they run their families. They're going to do it completely different. That's real impact. But there's no little number, no little gray number that kind of increments at the bottom of the post to let you know about that. Basically, the older web, the more decentralized peer-to-peer web, I'm a distributed systems guy. This is what I do in my day job as a theoretical computer science. I study the theory behind distributed systems.
1: What's a distributed system in layman's terms?
0: So instead of having just a completely pre-planned centralized system where everything runs on one machine, in a distributed system you have lots and lots of different processes that work together to solve something. And one of the phenomenons you get in these systems is you can get emergent properties that are very resilient and very robust. And the early web, especially the blogosphere, had this. You had lots of independent voices Connected through links and authority and reputation, there was a decentralized trust hierarchy that worked really well at figuring out who should I listen to, who shouldn't I listen to, who's an up-and-comer. None of this was centralized. None of this was run out of a giant server farm owned by Facebook, you know. And so I think we had something good going. And where we got in the trouble is when we said, well, let's try to centralize all of this online content creation interaction into walled gardens run by a small number of people at large companies. This is the story of the 20th century in different economies, right? When you tried to have the centrally planned economies, it didn't work. It was too hard in the Soviet-style centrally planned economies, where you said, we're going to have 10 smart people who sit here and figure out the right way to run our economy. They couldn't do it, right? This is Hayek. The more free-form, market-based economies, like in the capitalist countries, it worked well. There was information in the pricing. It was decentralized. It was emergent. But they were very robust, and they are very dynamic. I think the same thing is true with the information sphere. Walled gardens do not work well when you're talking about hundreds of millions of people trying to connect with each other.
1: So what Cal has been talking about segs into the topic matter for his newest book, which is called Digital Minimalism, with the subtitle of Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. Let's start at the end of your book, that is. Why did you mention morse's invention of the telegraph and the morse code at the end of the book why bring up something like that
0: morse invents the telegraph this is a paradigm shift because what this ushers in is the age of electronic communication so now you can actually communicate using electricity you can communicate at the speed of light and the initial message was what hath god wrought?" from the bible There's a couple different reasons for this, but it's it's symbolic we look at it historically that this is a paradigm shift. And they didn't know how, what impact was it going to be now that we've entered the electronic communication age. And my point was, this moved really fast and it had effects that we weren't prepared for. In part, because when you move to electronic communication, unlike almost any innovation in the past, we start to lose our physical intuition for it. So you invent a better plow. I I understand this physically, right? Like this thing is moving the dirt. It moves the dirt better. You invent the steam locomotive. I get it, right? The steam is pushing this thing that turns a wheel. This thing rolls down a track. You You could understand what's going on. Electronic communication was more mysterious and magical. I don't know what's happening. There's cables and there's something happening. And across the ocean, you're somehow knowing what I'm saying here. We lost all of our intuition for it. So It was a huge shift in humanity. It was a huge shift in the history of civilization. It introduced technologies that we no longer had a deep physical intuition for. And as a result, it's had lots and lots of impacts, many of which were unplanned and unexpected. That was the start of this idea of electronic communication revolution beginning to change our lives completely and often in ways that we had not planned in advance or it caught us off guard.
1: I wanted to ask you maybe just Can we define the problem that you see? Why are you worried about it?
0: So to understand this new book, Digital Minimalism, it helps to briefly understand the last book I wrote, which was called Deep Work. It was about your professional life. And the basic idea was there's these technologies that came along in the workplace that in isolation were just self-evidently useful, like email. It is just easier to send an email than to, to write a letter or to place a phone call, right? Like in isolation, this is great. This makes something that I have to do a lot easier. But when you zoom out of isolation, there is these unexpected impacts where people looked up 10 years later and they're spending so much of their day on email and Slack that they weren't getting any work done, right? <laughs> so it was something that was useful that got out of hand, you know, once it was introduced. So I wrote this book and it was about, okay, technologies have these unexpected impacts to the workplace and here's what you should do about it. And I went on the road and, and did a lot of interviews And a lot of the feedback I started to get was, yeah, but what about technology in our personal lives? Because something similar was happening. There's all these tools that in isolation are self-evidently useful or cool. A mobile phone is useful. If you can access the internet on your phone, that's more useful than not being able to do that. Social media in isolation, hey, this is useful, right? I could connect to people easier. That I wasn't in touch in before. I could find out about events in isolation. All these things were just okay, it's useful. And, and a lot of them were even free. But when you looked up five, 10 years later, suddenly you realized you were spending way more time looking at screens than was useful or healthy. It was just like email in the workplace, except for now it was these tools in your personal lives. People were increasingly losing autonomy to their online lives. And their issue was not usefulness. It's not is Facebook completely useless or does it have some use? It's not, is a smartphone terrible or does it have some use? It's not about is this useful or not. It was about autonomy. People felt like more and more of their time was spent staring at screens, looking at devices, keeping them away from things they knew were more valuable that would make their life richer. And so what's the solution here?
1: Wait one second before we get to the solution, though. Yeah. It's also a bit more dire than autonomy. You pointed out some things, some concrete facts about a group you call iGen could you just lay out some of the things about what iGen is and what the problems are they're facing?
0: Well, iGen is the, is the canary in the digital coal mine. If you want to understand, I mean, there's, there's lots of issues with people spending way more time looking at screens than they want to. The obvious issues is just that it keeps you away from doing things that's more valuable. Another issue, though, is, well, what's the impact on our brains? Like This is new. This idea that you're in constant, lightweight connection is something that we didn't evolve for, and we've never been able to do this until recently. So maybe it's okay, or maybe there's going to be some actual psychological side effects. I mean, this is a big experiment. It's a drastic way to live. The social aspects of our brain, the part of our brain that's dedicated to social processing is massive. It's a huge part of what our brain does. So it's a very sensitive, important part of the brain. So if you start messing around with it and saying, "Let's, let's be connected all the time, what's going to happen? So if you want to understand what's going to happen, it's sometimes useful to say, well, let's look at someone who's pushing it to an extreme, and then we'll see the effects most pronounced. So the people push it to the extreme is iGen, which is the first generation of kids who essentially grew up with smartphones. So I don't have the exact dates, but basically...
1: Young people born between 1995 and 2012, a group Twenge calls iGen. So Twenge is this researcher.
0: Yeah, Janine Twins is a researcher out in California who's an expert on generational demographics, right? So what she does is she studies generations and see how things changes between different generations. So she calls this iGen. I think some people call it Generation Z. The borders are a little bit fuzzy, but the key thing about 1995 is the lower end, is that means when you were 12 years old, it was 2007, which is when the iPhone was introduced, right? So this is where the definition is. So it's when you enter those tween years, early teenage years you had access to smartphones. So this generation is phenomenally connected. So, you know, maybe you and I complain we're on, our, we're on our phones too much, but nothing like a 19-year-old or a 22-year-old. It's just constant. It's constant staring at the phone. So we can say this is the canary in the coal mine. Like, what's the impact? And what Twinge found was anxiety and anxiety-related mental health issues are off the charts for this generation. It's off the charts. She's studied changes between generations, you know, going back all throughout the twentieth century. She's never seen anything like this. And they're never this pronounced. You look at the graph, and it just jumps. And she's been looking for different explanations, right? Well, maybe you know there was the financial crisis, or there was later on the election of Donald Trump or something, right? I mean, she was looking at all these different things. None. Of the only timing that makes sense. The only thing that makes sense from it that actually matches the graph of when things get worse is smartphone. And now other researchers are finding the same thing. Twins will say, like, this seems too simplistic. I don't want this to be the answer. But it's becoming increasingly clear that it is the answer. So what's happening is when you take a generation that is connected all the time, it's having a huge impact on their mental health. And this is a canary in the coal mine that says, we're not wired for this. We're not wired for constant, lightweight connection. I definitely find this in my research. I think a lot of people have this background hum of anxiety that they've just become used to. This sort of screen-focused life we have, in addition to taking us away from things that we know are better for us to do and more meaningful and more fulfilling, is also screwing around with our brain chemistry.
1: You mentioned later on in the book that one of the anxieties that people have or problems is they don't actually know quality things to do with their time. Like it must be something you have to relearn.
0: You know, I ran this experiment where I took 1,600 people and they got off all, we called it optional personal technology. So no social media, no news online.
1: By the way, it was your 1,600 person experiment. This is an example of the type of thing I was talking about at the top of the call. This was impact. If you would have asked these people to like your post on Facebook, you probably wouldn't have got 1,600 people to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yet 1,600 people decided to run an experiment in their lives because you prompted them. That's a sort of impact that Facebook doesn't track.
0: It doesn't track it. But I've been writing about these ideas you know, for months. And people were listening, and they're interested. And then when I finally asked, you could have a real impact. People would say, okay, I've been following it, long articles, deep ideas. Yeah, I get it. I've been engaged.
1: So I look at your post, it's like five people comment, 30 people comment, 50 people comment, yet 1,600 people step up to run an experiment with their lives.
0: For a whole month. Yeah, for a whole month. They took all techn- all the optional technology out of their life. Yep.
1: So the idea of the experiment, lay it out for us.
0: It's an idea called the digital declutter. Because digital minimalism, I mean, just to... A- the peek at the solution, basically what I've been preaching to people and what this book preaches is that these are serious problems that you have with screens in your personal life, and tips aren't going to do it. We're past just getting hacks and tips, and turn off your notifications, try to take a do a digital Shabbat every week. You know, we're, we're past tips. This is really serious. Just like with the health issues that came up when we switched to a more processed food based diet in the mid-20th century, it wasn't enough just to tell people, try to eat healthier you know, try to exercise a little bit more. What got people healthy? They needed full out systems and lifestyles of living. They say, I am vegan. I'm primal, right? I'm a, you know, People needed, I, I do CrossFit. People needed full philosophies of how to live. Well, I think we need that in technology, right? We need a whole philosophy of technology use that's grounded in your values, well beyond just tips and tricks. Like, no, no, I am an X. And the X I'm proposing is called digital minimalism. You can be a digital minimalist, right? It's like in the, the food space saying I'm primal or I'm paleo, right? Like it's, it's an internally consistent evidence-based set of lifestyle guidelines that's rooted in your values. So how do you become a digital minimalist? Well, the easiest way to do it is to run one of these 30-day digital declutters. It's what you would do if you were trying to be a minimalist in your house. You declutter your house, you get rid of all the extra junk, and then you, in the end you say, well, what do I really need to add back? And your house is much more simplified. A digital declutter is the same thing for your digital life. So for 30 days, you get all of the optional personal technology out of your life, social media, news online, to the point that it's it's possible text communication beyond just like logistical things. A lot of people did video games, especially a lot of young men took video games out as part of the detox. Uh, A lot of people also took out Netflix. Netflix. A lot of people did. I didn't have this in the original instructions. This was just my, maybe on myopic, I'm like, well, I'm a father of three and uh, I'm busy and I don't have time for any of these things. But I got pushback immediately for people say, no, 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 Netflix video games, that's got to be on the choppy block too. So people take these out of their life for 30 days. During that 30 days, it's a bit of a detox, but it's much more than a detox. It's also you getting reacquainted with your values, the things you actually care about, the things that actually bring you meaning, the things that are actually important. When the 30 days are over, you now say, what is going to earn its way back into my digital life? And so for any of these things to come back into your digital life, they have to earn their way back. And the way they earn their way back is you have to have a, a good argument that this is the best way to use technology to support something I deeply value. And if it doesn't pass that threshold, you say, I'm not going to let this back. And people will look at these minimalists and say, oh, that's weird that you don't have your phone with you or that you're not staring at your phone while in the elevator waiting in line. But the minimalist will say, well, let's be objective here. What's weird is how much you are looking at it. What's weird is how much most people are using their screens and looking at their phone. The minimalists are actually probably getting back to something that's, that's more normal. So that's a long way of saying this is what the declutter is. And when I was researching the book, I said, let's try this out. And that's what I recruited the 1,600 people to give it a try and report back about what happens.
1: Were there surprising results for you in the 1,600?
0: The three big things that caught my attention from the reports, one, people had forgotten how much enjoyment and satisfaction they got out of the analog activities that increasingly attractive screens had pushed out of their life. The type of harder analog type relationship, hobby, community type activities that people used to spend their time doing outside of work.
1: That's interesting. Could you flesh out some examples of activities that are being marginalized in the digital age, like at least in those 1600 people?
0: A lot of people talked about reading. I had multiple reports of people rediscovering, and they're really enthusiastic about this, the joy of a library. They're like, I forgot this, right? Like You go in, you don't know what you're going to get. You come out with a stack of books. It's free. It's exciting. A lot of people talked about that. A lot of hobbies People got back to painting, to knitting, sports, right? I'm out playing, you know, working on whatever it is, so pick up basketball again. And then community and social interaction. Actually, like long conversations, walks, walks with a friend, like walks in the woods, just long conversations where you're just with a person. And then getting back involved with communities. Oh, I'm back involved with this group at my church or this group in my town. People really, really enjoy this and they had forgotten how much they enjoyed it and they were surprised by how little of it they were doing what i argue in the book is that we really need i call it high quality leisure we need it i mean go back all the way to aristotle and aristotle's talking about this in the, in the nicomachean ethics
1: you bring out all the big guns in this book buddy well these are old <laughs>
0: ideas none of this is new right these are all old ideas we need high quality leisure we're empty without it and the Scary thing about a lot of the sort of digital personal technologies is that they could paper over that void just enough and make it just bearable enough that we don't invest the time to add that to our life. This is what people discovered at the detox. You get rid of that, you get rid of the digital distraction, you feel a big void, right? And it's like human instinct. I've got to get out there and start doing things, right? And that's the way it's supposed to work, right? We have this human drive that we don't like boredom. And we have really good instincts. Our instincts are really hoed. We we want to manipulate the world with our hands. We want to build something. We want to take in information. We want to be with people in our community and helping them. Our instincts drive us to the right things to do. And as soon as people get the personal tech out of their life, these instincts fire back up. It's like, oh, my God, I got to go to the library. I got to go, you know, I got to go for a run. Like, you feel this drive. I got to do these high-quality leisure. But if you have a screen there, like, yeah, but... I could look at MLB trade rumors. There might have been a new trade happening or something like this, or maybe someone liked something and and you can get away with it. It's a very dangerous aspect. It sort of surprised me to to see the the impact of this aspect is that these distractions are just good enough to paper over the void that you're actually feeling when you don't have high quality leisure. And so we're unhappy, but we're distracted enough that we don't quite realize it.
1: You mentioned two other things. That was the first item that surprised you about looking at the returns from the 1600 person experiment, there was two others.
0: The second is related, which is people discovered it's hard work to add high quality leisure back. You're driven to do it, but it's really hard work. And that's why they needed the whole 30 days. And maybe they need even more time to that because it's difficult, right? So people should not underestimate the, the difficulty of adding back high quality leisure. We've essentially, and our leisure lives have become very lazy because we could just sort of be on these things, and it's very easy, and we feel like we're doing things, we're connecting to people, and we're reading news, and, and we've become soft. So high-quality leisure, that people reported this was hard. It was hard work, but very meaningful work. Like, hard things are meaningful. Like Working out is hard, but it feels good. And then the third thing was people were surprised by how wrong the stories they had told themselves about the necessity of a lot of these services and tools. They had told themselves all these stories about the fundamental nature of these things in their lives. And they were surprised to the degree to which they're pretty optional. Once they got away from it for a while, they said, this wasn't adding anything. I'm not really missing much.
1: Is there one bullshit objection that really sticks out to you? Cause that was one of the things that jumped out to me. That's easy to relate to is people say, you know what, Cal, I can't get rid of X tool because I use it to do Y.
0: You know, one thing I hear a lot, and actually I wrote an op-ed about this, in the New York times and it got a lot of, Flack for it, but I still stand by it. Is that too many young people are convinced that just being on social media in some sort of nebulous way is crucial to their career? They just have this vague sense, like, well, I I need to be on here. How am I ever going to find jobs or opportunities? And look, my friend met someone on social media that got him this position, right? They just have this nebulous sense that if I'm on here for two hours a day, you know, all this time they're wasting. And there's just not a lot of evidence that that's true. Widespread social media use is what, five or six years old? I just don't buy it that at all of these industries that have all been around for a long time and have long had established ways for identifying and rewarding talent, that somehow in a five or six year period, they said, forget all that. Scrap all that. We need to see how much Instagram engagement people have. For most people, if you're not running like a brand based business where you know, social media is your main engagement with an audience, It's not helping your career. And in fact, if you took that two hours a day that you're spending on there, if you took that cognitive surplus and used it to hone your skills, you're going to have a 10x better return, right? I mean, for the most part, people want people who are good. They're desperate to find people who are good. Be good. I even wrote a book about this back in 2012 called So Good They Can't Ignore You. That advice works. Be so good they can't ignore you. (laughs) Your Instagram follower count is not going to have a big impact one way or the other unless you're trying to be, you know, Paris Hilton. What does it mean
1: to go pro on social media?
0: So one of the things I did in the book is I talked to social media professionals. I mean, that's kind of a nebulous term, but basically people who make their living using social media. So on behalf of a company or something like this, like a social media brand managers. And one of the things I noticed is the way they use social media is so different than the way that most people use it. First of all, it has nothing to do with their phone. Professional would never use social media on their phone. They usually have some sort of complex like tweet deck style setup on a desktop computer that they're using, and they have structure. Like, yeah, I have some advanced searches I do to see like what's going on in these topics that I care about. I have a schedule of posting on behalf of the company, and it's work, and it's very structured, and they don't actually spend that much time engaging with the back and forth of the screens. And so I like this idea that if you need to use social media for some particular purpose, use it like a pro. Use it on your desktop. Have a structure for how you use it. Maximize the advantage you need to get while losing all the downsides.
1: You mentioned you thought it was important, the sleight of hand that Facebook's tried to pull, where they've declared themselves a foundational technology.
0: What they tried to do is basically, the way they used to attack critics was, they would make it seem like it's a foundational technology like the internet or the telephone network. And if you don't use it, that's a wildly eccentric thing to do. Be like saying, I don't use phones, or I don't use the internet, or something like this. And I don't think that's true. I think Facebook is like an easy on-ramp to the internet. It doesn't offer anything that's not already there. There's many, many different tools to find people and communicate with them electronically. There's many, many different tools that have been around forever on the internet to post information, find news, or follow information or news produced by other people, all Facebook is is a sort of gentle on-ramp for these type of things. It says, well, we'll give you a walled garden where the interface is very nice and we, we make it really easy and kind of idiot-proof to sort of be on here and find people and post things. We'll have this sort of collectivist attention market type thing, so we'll, we'll make sure that you get some attention right away so you'll kind of feel good. But I feel like the right analogy is you know, Facebook is to the social internet today what AOL was to the World Wide Web in the 1990s. It was like a gentle, odd wrap for people who were a little worried about it. It's not fundamental, right? I mean, it's this idea that we need Facebook or we're not going to be able to connect with people on the internet is just crazy. And in fact, it's something that could go away in a flash because no one pays for it. People like it, but most people are also relatively indifferent to it. And if you took Facebook out of most people's lives, they wouldn't really care. They kind of use it for inertia and a few useful things. I think that's a very dangerous position to be in if you're a $500 billion company. But there they are, right? I mean, I think, I don't know if I wrote an article once that said, what in the history of our modern economy have we had a company that was so valuable at the same time that it was so dispensable? I mean, if you took ExxonMobil or Standard Oil at its height, like we really needed oil products it was running our factories it was running our automobiles if you got rid of it it would be a big problem it used to be expensive companies or if you got rid of steel u.s steel carnegie steel empire well we really needed steel we were building all these cities and we were building up vertically and if you got rid of it it would be a problem facebook is as valuable as those were at their peak but we don't really need it people are like yeah yeah The most common thing you hear about Facebook is like, yeah, I don't check it that much. (laughs) It's crazy. What has something ever been this valuable from a capitalization point of view in which it was so dispensable? I mean, if they were shut down by the government tomorrow, 90% of the users would shrug.
1: Today's show is sponsored by dynamitejobs.co. It's our newest baby and target something we're passionate about here at the TMBA, helping your business succeed through growing amazing remote teams. And we know from personal experience, just how hard it can be to find the right people. And that's why we've designed dynamite jobs to address that problem. So starting at as low as $200, we can help you find your next remote team member. And for 500, we'll handpick the best candidates using a pre-vetting process. We call it wise match. And it's designed to save you days, even weeks of your time determining the top ranking candidates for the role that you need. And for those of you seeking remote jobs, I urge you to register with us. It's completely free. I promise you we're not just the next job board. We want to work actively with you to identify ideal positions for your skill set. So whether you're looking to hire great people or whether you're one of those great people who feels that your skills are wasted in your current company and you want more freedom and flexibility in your life, check out dynamitejobs.co today. You said that it's now, for the first time, possible to completely banish solitude from your life. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, smartphones, the mobile internet, and the attention economy coming together have made it possible that you could spend your entire day, your entire week, without ever having a moment of solitude. Where I want to use the precise definition of solitude, which is freedom from input from other minds. So that's the right definition of solitude. I took this from Mike Irwin and Raymond Kethledge's book, Lead Yourself First, which is a great book and it's about solitude and business, but that's the way they defined it. And I think they get it right. So it has nothing to do with physical environment. It has nothing to do with, am I alone? Am I isolated? Am I on a mountaintop versus on a, a coffee shop, right? It has nothing to do with that. It's about, is your mind free from inputs from other minds? So if you're reading something or reacting to something or listening to something or talking to someone your mind is reacting to other people's minds, right? Input from other people's minds, which is fine. We spend a lot of time doing that. But solitude is just a time we get where you're just alone with your own thoughts. You're not reacting to someone else's thoughts. It's just your own thoughts. We need it. That is really important for human flourishing. And if you take it away, it's problematic. And it's been impossible to take this away until recently because what it required was a device that you could hold that could somehow be connected to a global network at all times and all places, including under the ground the subway tunnels or up in the air through satellite Wi-Fi. So wherever you are, you're connected to a global network, and then you have a trillion-dollar attention economy doing everything they can to get you to look at this thing and take inputs from other minds. So you have it, and it's incredibly desirable to look at it. And as a result, you can, if you want, banish true solitude from your life completely, which we've never been able to do before. And this is where I actually first introduced the Janine Twidge research about iGID is because they did that and it's destroyed their minds. I mean, it's just the psychological damage is huge that we, we haven't seen these mental health issues hit a generation this strong before since we've been measuring these type of things.
1: There's an impact quote worth bringing up about this. Philip Morris just wanted your lungs. The app store wanted your soul. Who said that? That's Bill Maher. Bill Maher said that. Okay. <laughs> Some might say, oh, this is overly precious. Really, like solitude, it sounds like a philosophical concept. What's the case that this is actually the thing that's important?
0: Solitude, it's not precious. It's like vegetables are walking, right? It's just one of the nutrients that a human being needs to flourish. We know that any sort of great leaps of introspection, creativity, self-reflection, leading to breakthroughs, all of this requires solitude. I tell a lot of stories throughout the books of all these different Occasions where people solitude helped bring people these big leaps of insights, either professionally or personally. We have all the great commentators starting back. I start with Blaise Pascal and the Enlightenment and carry it all the way through to Wendell Berry and beyond. Everyone has known this and has talked about the value of solitude. It's not a coincidence, right? I mean, the reason everyone talks about it is because people know that this is important. And then you have the evidence that, okay, well, let's take a generation and get rid of solitude altogether. That's iGen and their minds are short circuited It's terrible, right? That's the canary and the coal mines. So let's look at the scientific evidence. What happens if you take a group and say, no solitude for you? It's terrible. The anxiety becomes overwhelming, and the, the anxiety-related disorders really jumps up. So solitude, it's not philosophical. It's like green vegetables or walkie. It's just something you need to be healthy, and I think we've known this for centuries.
1: You quoted Nietzsche mentioning that Something like he wouldn't trust a thought that didn't come from a walk? Yeah. What do you think he was getting at there?
0: Nietzsche was a huge walker, like a heroic walker. A lot of big thinkers were. Walking is a great way to induce solitude, right? Well, now, not necessarily, because we could have something in your pocket that is connected over the airwaves. Nietzsche never would have conceived of the possibility that distraction could follow you on a walk. But he felt real original thought required that you got out of the library, right? So this was the sort of equivalent of being on the web for the 19th century, right? He's like, you had to get out of the library. You had to get away from reading other people's commentary with the dusty old books. And you had to go walking where you had no books so that you could work the thoughts through in your own head and spend time with your own thoughts and be comfortable with your own thoughts. And that's where all, all great thinking came from. Thoreau was similar. Thoreau said you should be spending hours every day walking, <laughs> essentially for exactly this purpose. And he said, this is not, he was very clear this is not about exercise. It's not about making your body stronger. It's about your soul and your mind. You have to be outside. You have to be alone with your own thoughts. You, the transcendentalists were really big on this. If you're not outside, your brain's going to suffer. Your soul's going to suffer. If you just try it, spend a week doing walks without your phone. It seems like a minor thing, but then you, you remember pretty quickly, oh, this is a completely different sensation than having that nagging, Processing inputs from other minds uses different parts of your brain, and it's tiring and it uses a lot of energy. You can't be doing that all the time. We forget the degree, or we don't realize the degree to which this is creating this background hum of anxiety and unhappiness. You have to get away from it. And I love walking as a way to do it. Just be with your thoughts.
1: Have you noticed some ways that your readership or yourself have reintroduced social media technology in a way that really kicks ass? Like, man, this is something that it's really
0: good for. Well, I mean, I've been a big proponent of the social internet. What's that mean? So the social internet is using the internet to connect to people and discover new ideas. The internet's great for this. I'm not a big believer in the idea that the right way to leverage the social internet is to try to put it all into a giant walled garden owned by a single company. that's us try to satisfy stockholders by extracting your attention. I think the walled garden experiment is a big failure. I love the internet. I love things like the blogosphere, the interesting things that people are doing with video, the way that the internet allows me, for example, to find 1,600 people and have them run an experiment and they come back and tell me how it's going. And they know me through my blog and we communicate through email and all these technologies are fantastic. We would be worse off without the social internet. But I don't think having these giant conglomerate walled guarded companies try to put all of the social internet within their own corporate walls and running it in a big centralized manner, I don't think that's the way to do it. And so I always make that distinction, because people will sometimes incorrectly characterize me as saying, well, we should just not be on computers, or we shouldn't be on the internet. I'm a computer scientist. like I'm a technologist. This is what I do. I I love the internet.
1: It can be confusing, though, because there's like two critiques happening at once. There's a critique of the wall garden and Facebook itself and technologies like it, but then there's also the critique of being available for notifications. And so, like, a lot of good things happen on Facebook, right? That might not otherwise occur on the social internet. That could be confusing for people, It's like there's two different critiques happening at once. Is that true?
0: Yeah. And to some degree, they're pretty related.
1: Because if it were decentralized, in other words, it, the same control over our time couldn't be exercised.
0: Well, because you would kill you would kill this attention economy model. So, one of the reasons why the, the walled garden is so bad is because the walled garden makes its money off of the idea of we'll package your time and attention and sell it to advertisers. I see. And we're going to try to do this on a massive scale. We're going to try to, we have to validate a $500 billion valuation extracting time and attention. And keep in mind that ExxonMobil right now is around $300 million, right? So, Facebook is making significantly more value extracting time and attention out of your head than ExxonMobil is making extracting oil out of the ground at the moment. And so what they're doing is putting billions of dollars and really smart minds to figuring out how can we extract more and more time and attention out of our users' heads. I mean, essentially, Facebook, if we want to use the oil and gas analogy, is cognitive fracking. It's a technological breakthrough that allowed them to extract way more time and attention for people than they were able to do back in the days of billboards, magazines, and TV. So just like with fracking, the gas and oil companies, you see technological breakthroughs said, hey, we can get more natural gas out of the ground with better technology. Social media conglomerates like Facebook figured out if we make these things into apps and we make them sticky enough and we work with intermittent reinforcement and social approval indicators in just the right way, we could extract a lot more time and attention from our users
1: I'm glad I pushed you on that, and this might be useful to you if, as you go around to the more pleb blogs in the blogosphere, like the tropical boys over here, because it's easy for me to like slot in your commentary into this very typical idea of, you know, Facebook sucks, it's ruining the internet. What you're saying there really made it come home for me in a, in a new way, in that if these things are decentralized, people wouldn't be incentivized to drive us to mindlessly mind things so aggressively. There would be no incentive in place.
0: Yes. I mean, we we use Facebook too much because they've engineered it to make that the case. And that was a huge engineering feat. I document a lot of this in the book, essentially how they innovated these apps to become these sort of addictive things that, that create way overuse, that has you looking at it when you're with your kid at bath time. And so that's what I think is, dangerous. I mean, there's a lot of things dangerous when you consolidate the internet into one giant company. It's not going to run as well as being decentralized. But this attention economy is what caused the trouble. Back in the the early 2000s, none of us had a a problem where we were sort of obsessively checking blogs at all times during the day and no longer paying attention to the person across from us at the table. But Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, these are engineered for that. So I, I think that's a major part of the problem. The reason we're using them too much is because that's the whole point. I mean, that's the business model. Two more
1: questions for you. The first is, what does it mean to reclaim conversation?
0: One of the ideas about digital minimalism is that, let's put it this way, social interactions, right, relationships, we know that plays a big role in human flourishing. We all feel a drive to be connected to people. We've evolved to be social, a social species. And so loneliness is a really negative feeling, and that's on purpose, right? We have this evolved drive. We want to be connecting to people. We want to be around people. We want to be communicating with people. But we have this paradox where if you look at the best research on social media, which these are technologies that let you connect to people more, increased social media use is leading to increased loneliness. It's having exactly the opposite effect of what you would expect. And in the book, I really go the detail about these studies because it can be a little bit confusing. And Facebook will point to studies that have Facebook authors on them that are saying, well, social media can make you feel better. But if you look at the very best work, including the stuff that's coming out now, it's this clear trend. The more you use social media, the more likely you are to be lonely. So what's going on here? What seems to be happening, and this is the researcher's sort of best hypothesis, is that this sort of online lightweight interaction, which is like clicking a like or leaving a comment or, you know, noting something on someone's wall or retweeting someone you know, This lightweight interaction, it satisfies maybe your drive to socialize. So if you're doing a lot of this, you feel like you're socializing a lot, but it doesn't satisfy the actual need that your brain has for true communication and true socialization. Your brain doesn't actually count the sort of odd line back and forth nearly the same that it counts a conversation like we're having now where it's analog, where you can hear the tone of my voice and see how my face is moving. And there's this incredibly rich stream of information that's coming. And you have huge parts of your brain right now that's processing all of this. That's what your brain thinks social interaction is. It doesn't see a number, like a retweet number or a textual comment on the screen or on an SMS. It doesn't see that. It doesn't count that. So what seems to be happening is that people are displacing old-fashioned analog face-to-face communication with the online social media interaction. Like, oh, it's all the same. I'll do more of it online. But they don't get nearly the same benefits, and that's why they end up lonelier. You can't replace the old-fashioned stuff that we've been evolved over 100 million years to crave. You cannot replace it with likes and comments and text messages. It just doesn't scratch the same itch that we have as a species. And so if you allow social media and other online interaction to take its place, you will be more lonely. You need to get back to the old-fashioned stuff. And my claim is that you should think about only the old-fashioned stuff, by which I mean you actually have some sort of analog component. You can hear someone's voice. You can see someone's face. That's all you should count as actual social interaction. And you should think about the stuff you're doing on text messaging and social media as primarily logistical. Its main goal is to help set up real old-fashioned face-to-face interaction. Stop thinking about what you're doing online as socializing. It's just a tool. Online is a tool to help set up the walk with a friend, the phone call with a sibling, the meeting with the community group, and only count those things as true socialization. If you're not doing a lot of that, then you should be thinking there's a problem here.
1: So far, we've been having a broad ranging conversation about what I have found to be fascinating topics and some examples in Cal's book. Towards the end of this conversation, I thought it might be a good idea to draw Cal back into the core of what digital minimalism
0: really is. The be a digital minimalist means that you're very intentional about what technology you use. You basically start with, here's what I value, and then you work backwards from each value and say, what's the best way, if any, to use technology to support this value? And then you ignore everything else. And so it's a very intentional approach to technology, which you use much less than most people, but what you use, you get a lot more value out of. So the question is, why does this work? And so there's sort of three principles for why this minimalist approach seems to be a very effective way of navigating your digital life. And the third is that there's value in intentionality itself. And that's this thing that we often overlook. I mean, I think we understand this more in physical culture. I think we understand this in the sort of like Jocko Wilnick, working out 4.30 in the morning, you know, discipline is freedom. A little in the physical sort of health culture, we understand this idea that there's way more deeper satisfaction that comes out of sort of the committing to discipline, even though in the moment it's hard, it holds for a lot of other aspects in your life that you get huge value out of being very intentional about how you live. And the value you get out of being very intentional can swamp the negative things that intentionality causes, like the things you're missing out on. You know, I don't, whatever, I have to wake up at 4.30 to to do my, my Jocko Wilnick workout, right? Well, that's in the moment a negative, right? Because you're tired and it hurts your arms or whatever. But the power you feel for being so intentional about your health is so much more positive than the negative of having to get up early. Well, it's the same thing with tech. You will get such a benefit of satisfaction and meaning when you know that you're being very intentional. I use this. I use this. I don't use this. I don't use this. The meaning you get from that will far swamp the little disadvantages of, oh, I don't use Facebook anymore. And it's a pain now for me to find out when like this local group meets because they are on Facebook groups and I have to ask someone or whatever like there's all these little negatives or or i'm missing out i don't use twitter anymore and you know i'm kind of missing out And weird twitter was funny i kind of like looking at like weird twitter stuff if you clutter your life with lots and lots of different apps and tools they each have a little small benefit but they're each taking up more minutes or hours of your life and they're not worth it and so the effect of having all these things cluttered together is a net negative and that's an idea that goes back to thoreau actually it's the same with clutter in your house right the way we get clutter in our digital lives is we tend to look at the small tangible concrete benefits of different tools and techniques and behaviors and we really are bad at assessing the other cost. So we say I get a little benefit from being on this Twitter because I get this news or this is funny and that's a little benefit and if I do, it's better to have that than not. It's like well, you know, I have this birdhouse in my basement because well, I might one day need to put a birdhouse up, right? But there's these costs, right? It's clutter. It's taking up space. It's taking you away from time you'd be spending doing something better. It's taking you away from talking to other people or building skills or doing something more, more fulfilling. It's taking you away from calling your mom. You're out driving instead of being with your community. Like all these, all these costs, right? And we don't think about the cost. And then you look in your basement and you have a thousand birdhouses and you can't move around there and it's crushing and you're a hoarder and you're like, this is terrible. <laughs> Even though every little thing you have clutter in your basement has some abstract value we're bad at the cost piece of the equation.
1: So Cal, you make being an interview really easy for various reasons I won't get into because it would be awkward. But I'll just say this has been a pleasure. What do you hope people do after they read the book? And anything you want to say to the audience, like soapbox, things that you hope that they take away from this interview?
0: I think people need a philosophy for their digital life, just like they have a philosophy for their health and fitness or just like they might have a religious philosophy that helps them understand ethics and morality. And it's hard and it's tricky and you can't just throw tips at it. You can't just throw tricks and you can't just read a, you know, a life hack article on how to turn off notifications. You need a philosophy that's grounded in your values that tells you clearly this is what technology I use, when I use it, how I use it and why I use it. You can't just let this be ad hoc. And so digital Minimalism is one such philosophy. So I just want to put one out there so we could just start people thinking, right, in terms of just like you say, you know, are you paleo or vegan? We need to start thinking in terms of lifestyle philosophies with technology. We have to get past tips and tricks. I happen to think digital minimalism is a good one. There's thousands of people who are doing this. I'm a digital minimalist. I've never had a social media account, for example. It turns out that's allowed. I still know what's going on in the world. I still sell books. like It's okay. (laughs) I still have friends. If you're interested in becoming a digital minimalist, I think doing the 30-day declutter is the right way in. That works really well. It gets you there fast. But I guess my big wish is that people are taking their digital life more seriously. And whether it's digital minimalism or you come up with something else, have a philosophy. Take it seriously.
1: Fantastic, Cal. Thanks for coming on the pod.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: big ups to Cal Newport for stopping by the TMBA pod for the second time. What I love about Cal is he doesn't profess to have all the answers, but in his last two books, Deep Work was really inspiring to me. And this new one, Digital Minimalism, really gets me thinking. It's so easy to get swept up in these technology trends that come along, and they continue to get more and more powerful. And I think the type of Things that Cal's talking about are of immense importance, you know, and really inspiring to me to focus on what's going to be good for my business, what's going to be good for me, what do I really value, and not just to get swept up in every shiny new object that companies with enormous power place in front of us. So, check out the book if you haven't read Deep Work Digital Minimalism. I think they're really, really powerful stuff for entrepreneurs. I hope you dig it too. You can weigh in over at tropicalmba.com slash Cal Newport 2. That's because this is the second time Cal's been on the show. We'll have show notes and links to everything mentioned in today's episode. Thanks for listening. And as always, we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.